This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. You can only improve as much as you allow yourself to improve. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Emerald. Hi, my name is Emerald, and I am a sex and relationships therapist at Together is Therapy, a private practice based in West Los Angeles. I specialize in interracial relationships, sexual trauma, painful sex, and sexual incompatibility. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to have you. You definitely have done a lot of schooling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so my graduate degree um, actually took three years. So it was a three-year Master of Science program um, in counseling. And then I got additional um, certificates in higher education, career counseling, and clinical counseling as well. But it wasn't until after I completed my undergraduate degree that I knew I wanted to follow my heart and actually do counseling or therapy. For a couple of reasons. So my undergraduate degree was in communication disorders with a minor in psychology. So at first, I thought I wanted to be a speech pathologist. So I went down that route. I was a speech language pathology assistant for about a year. But something kept pulling me toward like the counseling side, really wanting to counsel um, parents who had kids with disabilities. I tutored kids with disabilities myself in my high school and then during college as well. So something about the counseling side and really just allowing myself to practice that empathy really like sparked something in me. Um, But the hesitancy of going into therapy or counseling was one, I heard that therapists or counselors don't make all that much money. And this was like many years ago. So obviously I know, you know, where the money is now and I know (laughs) what different agencies offer um, different salary rates and what populations to work with. And what's really cool too is that you can specialize. So that really pulled me to it. But let me talk about the hesitancy first. So the financial side, wanting to um, have a stable career and also just finding a career that would allow me to like develop a career in which I wouldn't need as much schooling because I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue with higher education. I actually didn't know I wanted to go to college in the first place. I grew up in a very, like, uh, I guess, uh, wealthy community. And everyone was just talking about college this, college that. And I just never understood that because I never thought of myself as an academic. So (laughs) it wasn't until grad school where I started getting really good grades. And I was like, wait, I'm actually getting this now. Like something just clicked. So, um, yeah, upon completing my undergraduate degree, I got rejected from the master's program for speech, but I got accepted into the counseling program. So I took that, I ran with it. And I was the only Asian American in my cohort to to graduate. And that posed its own challenges too. On top of that, I was the only one who was wanting to pursue sex therapy. 
professors didn't really know about it. Colleagues didn't really have an interest in that. It was still taboo too. But I realized that the disability community does not have as many resources as able-bodied individuals, which is where my edge kind of comes in, is I specialize in sexuality and disability. So kind of uh, forming my career around rehabilitation counseling, which includes like substance use, previously incarcerated individuals, trying to rehabilitate back into society, and then also the disability community, particularly um, autism spectrum disorder. So I hope this isn't sounding confusing. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So then I did a lot of work with the disability community and I found that that's really where my heart resides. And I realized that they don't have mental health resources either, or not as many, even for the able-bodied community, like neurotypical individuals. We also don't really talk about mental health as much either. So there is a lot of stigma around sexuality, mental health. And that's why I want to be that mediator to one, get those resources out there for the people who need it most, but also normalize it as being part of the human experience. Right. I do feel like sex, especially, I mean, back in like the fifties and everything. Oh my God. Like you, I don't even think you could say the word sex. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely come a long way. But yeah. some people definitely do still, they see it as taboo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And actually, you sparked my other thought, too, in talking about relationships and interracial relationships, too, which is another specialty of mine. Um, I actually just presented at a research conference in D.C. Um, to present research on the interracial and intraracial, which is same race couples, and um, whether they experience relationship milestones similarly. Um, and we found that there were no significant differences in them experiencing different relationship milestones. Now, this is a poster. It wasn't, it's not a publication or anything. Um, and we did find our sample at a large West Coast university where diversity is a very major thing. Um, but that, that does show just, you know, like you said, like the taboo of talking about sex and the taboo of maybe being in an interracial relationship around mental health. So there's a lot of different things in play where I feel like it's multifaceted, multi-layered that kind of push us further away from normalizing these topics, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I do feel like we've come a long way, but it's almost like we go a long way, but then certain higher powers like to bring us back to the Stone Age. So it's constantly mm-hmm. that fight against, you know, we want to be free. We want to be who we are. We want to love whoever we want to love. But then other people are still telling us that we can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's hard. I mean, how, how can you be free and not be free at the same time? Do you see a lot of that coming in to see you? Like people who are just like, I just want to be happy, but I'm being told I can't. I actually do see that quite a bit. Um, it's, it's devastating sometimes, but it's also, it kind of bar- sparks a glimmer of hope too, because my clients, they do have that positivity in themselves to want to be happy, but there are different factors that are playing a role in hindering some of that happiness, whether that be previous sexual trauma, um, or previous abuse from family upbringing, mental health disorders such as, 
anxiety disorder, PTSD, depression, right? So I, I do see that quite a bit in people wanting to be happy, but there are different factors hindering them from really experiencing that full potential, whether that be like, like I said, like these are more internal factors and external being the trauma that they may have experienced. And then, as you mentioned, like, especially in society too, uh, portraying like things should be a certain way, portraying certain gender roles, let's say. But yeah, that is that is something that I do see in my clients. My personal experience too, right? Even as a therapist, I'm also human. And there are things that I've also experienced too that make it hard for me to experience true happiness. So I can truly empathize with clients and helping people in their relationships. Sometimes it would be very hard to communicate things to partners. So I would be kind of that mediator to help with, okay, how can we communicate that in a manner that's not attacking, but in a very welcoming way so that partners truly understand each other. Right. Are they at the same session or do you do them separately? No, it's the same session. So like couples therapy, they have the same time. Yeah. Gotcha. I didn't know if like, okay, I have it with one person, then one person, then bring you together. And (laughs) sometimes, sometimes there'll be times when like, it would be helpful to split the couple and then bring them back because it can get, there can be like high tension. I can totally see that. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I'll be like, okay, let's take a break. Let's do individuals first. Then we'll come back. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the Growing Up Bananas podcast. My name is Ethan. This is my co-host, Sam. What are we doing here? The podcast will explore the internal battle of not just Asian immigrants, but every immigrant. Whether it's staying true to thousands of years of culture that our parents passed on to us and their parents passed on to them, or assimilating to what we see around us. So why the bananas? Well, a banana was a slur used for an Asian person who'd lost touch with their heritage. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Growing up is hard enough as it is, and we find ourselves in a situation where we're not quite Asian enough for the Asians, and unfortunately aren't able to change the colour of our skin. Unless you're MJ. Well, that's true. We've been thinking about it, and as travel becomes more accessible, the world will become more intertwined. With that... The number of people who go through the same ups and downs of living in a foreign country like we did will rise. We want to share these experiences with you. Throughout the journey, we're inviting a series of guests to share their compelling stories with us. We hope to have the likes of Dami M, Jeremy Lin, Jackie Chan and Ando. who will hopefully join us as guests along the way. Follow us on socials to stay updated with Growing Up Bananas and we look forward to sharing our stories with you. People who have been through sexual trauma, how do you navigate that? What does that look like for a client to come see you who has been through sexual trauma? Yeah, so I want to explain to you like the initial steps first, starting from like the consultation. So people can find me on Psychology Today. They can find me on like Instagram, right? Um, And they'll reach out with a message. And I offer like 15-minute pre-consultations, right? So I'll have a consultation with them. And the initial conversation is usually just tell me a little bit about yourself. um, And I'll tell you a little bit more about my therapeutic approaches. And I'll answer any questions that I'll be able to address for you. So kind of building that initial rapport is very important. 
And then once we kind of get the rates and the availability all settled, then we actually have our first session. And in that first session, my primary approaches is to use what's called trauma-informed care, which is a foundational approach where you understand that that person or that everyone comes with some form of trauma, whether that be hurt or just life just threw them a bunch of curveballs and we didn't know how to handle it. So just understanding that that they are coming to heal. And then the other component too is offering a very welcoming and warm space for them to talk about difficult subjects. So that is my first and foremost thing. Offer empathy, be welcoming, and listen empathetically as well. Other approaches that I use with clients who experience or have experienced sexual trauma in our healing is cognitive processing therapy. So I really like cognitive processing therapy because it allows you to go a little bit deeper. My sessions are very hard, so I commend all of my clients for sticking with me. I, I would consider myself as a harder therapist, more challenging, because I, I do probe a bit. Um, I don't really beat around the bush, especially when it comes down to talking about the incident or the assault, for example. And sometimes I'll pull from different interventions. Um, of course, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of like not, I would say it's kind of a gold standard, but you don't have to, that doesn't have to be your primary thing to be a great therapist. Like I use that as like, I pull from those interventions, but I don't use that as my primary. My primary would be the ones that I've mentioned. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the process, how you go into it. What are some of the complaints that they have? Is it that they're scared to be intimate again? Is it that they can't get to orgasm? Like, what is it that they want help with? Yeah, pretty much all of those things that you've mentioned, um, wanting to be intimate. I'll, I'll expand on that. But yes, wanting to be intimate, maybe seeing genders differently. Maybe if they're, for example, their perpetrator was male, for example, then not being able to trust people as much as they used to. Symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder actually are like include like hypervigilance or not being able to sleep. So maybe helping to mitigate some of those symptoms of daily living that affect daily life activities, I mean. Like if you're not able to sleep and you're not able to walk to your work or to your car, like that that can be very debilitating and very anxiety ridden. Bad for your mental um, I'll help health. With that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it does, it does hurt mental health a bit. So in our sessions, I would teach skills like some uh, breathing or grounding techniques that you can use. I can talk about that more later too, but I don't want to get too off, <laughs> too off topic. Um, or we'll talk about tools that can help mitigate the symptoms that are a result of the sexual trauma. Um, and as far as dealing with the actual trauma and processing it, now that one is actually very difficult and that's what they come to see me for. A lot of times clients wait months or even years before they seek professional help. And that's where I come into is that I understand and I'm not judging them for coming to help later in life. Everyone has their own pace. And I think it's very extremely important that therapists do accept the client for where they're at 
and meet them there too. So they're not ready to talk about the assault. I don't push them to talk about it. I will have an open, transparent conversation. How much is this bothering you? Are you thinking about it every day? How often are you thinking about it? And then I'll offer different interventions we can use to help process. But if they're not ready, I'm not pushing. I'm just going to be there. Right. To listen. Yeah. I've had quite a few guests on my show now. And a lot of them, it seems to be 30 years is a popular number. They kept it secret for 30 years. That is a long time to hold on to such trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a very long time. I couldn't imagine. And never telling anyone. Like, they were married. They never told their spouses. Like, absolutely crazy. But I get it, Mm -hmm. I guess. Like, you're shamed and you're embarrassed. A lot of times they blame themselves, which you should never do. It's not your fault something happened to you. It's not what you wore. It's not that you were drinking. It's, you know, like there's boundaries in life and people don't always respect those boundaries. Exactly. Yeah. And on that point, too, actually, you bring up a really great point. I know it's very easy for survivors to feel like it was somehow their fault. And that is part of that trauma response and the mentality of let me justify this somehow. And a lot of times it's hard for people to admit, especially people who are very like empathetic and very kind hearted. It's hard for them to say, no, they are the bad person, that the perpetrator or the person who did this to me is bad. And instead they'll internalize. I did something. I kept going back. I wore this, you know, skirt or I was drunk. But regardless of all of those reasons, you didn't give that person the okay to do that to you. They decided to cross that boundary. They decided to impose this onto you, right? And I think that's where a lot of the heavy lifting comes in in therapy is we talk about that. We talk about trying to unhook some of those narratives that we're telling ourselves, some of those negative beliefs that we have about ourselves. And part of my role as a therapist is being on your side. And that you're not alone in this and that whatever you say, like, I'm not changing my stance. If someone imposed something onto you and they hurt you in some way and they cross that boundary, when you either verbally or actively did something or not do something too, and I'll talk about that in a moment, it's it's not your fault. People when may say like, oh, yeah, it's your fault because you did this. Or maybe sometimes friends don't really know what the right response is. Um, But we have to remember, too, that there are four trauma responses. Fight, flight, freeze, and appease. I don't really talk about those last two. Like in schooling, it was, I, I learned it in schooling. But before that, I thought there was just two trauma responses, whether you fight or you fly, right? But these last two, freeze and appease, I see this a lot in my clients. And it helps, and it does not help that they didn't know about these two because it was, They've been holding on to that shame that they didn't do anything. But the free response, which is to not do anything, that is a response. Your body decided that not doing anything was the best way to survive. And that is a response. And the other one, appeasing, 
meaning just going with it, doing what they are telling you to do. That is also a survival technique because by doing what they are telling you to do, you are surviving and you are here today. So yeah, those are the four different responses. And that's what I work through with my clients too. Um, And that's what I would tell other survivors is really consider your role in how you survived. Right. So you've worked with ex-sex predators. So you got to see, you get to see it on both sides. Now I see it on both sides. Yes. So I've worked with previously incarcerated individuals who have been convicted of a sex crime. Um, And before that, I did work with individuals um, who had substance use addiction. Um, So I worked with people from who were just recently released from prison. And what's actually kind of sad about this is I started that position right when COVID hit. And one of the things that we saw was, or one of the things I realized was that these people were getting released from prison, but they were getting released into a society where everyone was quarantined. Mm-hmm. So the rehabilitation process for them was probably re-traumatizing. And that, that I, I saw that a lot. Um, and that was pretty sad to see. A lot of my clients, too, were homeless. So we would do our sessions, like, on the phone. And they wouldn't know where they would be sleeping or where their next meal would be. That was with my previous, uh, with my first clinical position. <laughs> my second position was with the sex offender, with, with, was with sex offenders. and. These were mandated um, treatment sessions, which means that if they didn't do the sessions, then they would uh, be written up, basically, and either be put back in jail or they, they'll get some sort of like punishment, like a court date, jail, or sometimes if they reoffend, they'll get go, they'll go back into prison as well. Um, I had a really large caseload and so did my colleagues, which contributed to therapist burnout which uh is another whole topic that we can discuss later but yeah so with my work with them it was really hard to do because you can't force therapy onto someone even if it's mandated and i told them that i'm a very transparent therapist and i'm i will tell them like it is i'm not going to share coat i mean uh sugarcoat things and so i would tell them like Guys, I can't force you to do therapy. I can't force you to listen, but I do ask for your respect. And I do ask that when we have our sessions, that you are listening. And if you're not listening, then mute yourself because a lot of most of the sessions were actually telephonic. So imagine being on the phone with nine other men, me being the only counselor in that call, um, and trying to get people to mute their phone when they don't know how to mute their phone and trying to do therapy with them. It's very hard. So the work that I did was I tried to do more foundational work, understanding cognitive distortions, talking about family upbringing, talking about core beliefs. But when talking about sex-related things, that's when they would get triggered, which is understandable. And a lot of times they would say that a lot of times some people, majority of people do not admit to their offense, but the small minority that did, I can see that they were very hurt and still carry that pain with them and they will probably die still feeling that pain it's not to justify their behaviors i do think that what they did is wrong and as a counselor i was able to see how their upbringing 
or how their experiences led them to that decision. Um, so yeah, just back to your point, I did get to see both sides. Um, I've always wanted to work with sexual, tra um, sexual trauma survivors. And I also found this place where I can work with sex offenders first. So now I see both sides. It's very interesting. I bet. Do you believe <laughs> they can be rehabilitated? I think some, yes. I'm not going to say everyone because you really need to want it for yourself. And for those people who don't even admit to it, probably not. You can only, I feel like a rule I have is like, you can only improve as much as you would allow yourself to improve. I love that. So, yeah, I do think that people can rehabilitate. Absolutely. I think everyone has the potential to. Whether you want it or not, that's going to, you know, either increase or decrease your chances of actually getting rehabilitated. So, yeah, I, yeah, that's my short answer. <laughs> I mean, I get that. Obviously, it's like with anything, you know, if you smoke cigarettes, if you're an alcoholic, if you like to gamble, if you want help and you need to quit, you have to do it for yourself. You can't do it for your family. Yeah. You can't do it for your new boyfriend or, you know, like mm -hmm. you have to do it for yourself. It's the only way it's going to stick. Right. Yeah, exactly. Have any of your clients reoffended and then you had to be like why are we doing this again <laughs> i've had clients who relapsed so they relapsed into doing drugs again um and then i've had people who had to terminate with me because they went back in jail or they you know to my knowledge i don't think i had people who reoffended but i did hear colleagues who had people who reoffended so it's it's sad when you hear that Especially when it's from people that you really had faith in. Yeah, I bet that's but hard. I also, yeah, right. It is It is quite hard. And that's what made the position challenging. And that's partially what made it a little easier to, to get burned out. Especially for substance use counselors. If you keep trying and trying and trying to motivate your clients to not pick up that cigarette. Or not deal drugs again. Like if you're doing that every week with 20 plus clients, you, you can get kind of burned out. <laughs> so that's why it's very important to like take care of yourself. And I'm not trying to use the term self-care loosely. I do mean it in the way of like doing active self-care, doing something every single day for yourself. And that's something that I'm still trying to work on too. I'm not, I'm, I don't just try to preach um, things to my clients like I do try and use either the same techniques or modifying it for myself because it is very important and kind of like the putting on your your mask first like in the airplane you got to take care of yourself first because then the energy that you're exerting out is either not going to be as great or it's not going to be as strong for other people either absolutely I mean you have to have self-love you have to have all that stuff if you want to move in the right direction so is that mm -hmm. something just in California where they have to go to like classes and stuff? Because I would love for all prisons and jails to do that. I think that's very important because some of these guys might not even know why they do what they do. And if we can get to the core of that and make them understand, they have a better chance of not ever doing it again. That That's the ideal point 
right, is that they would understand and that they would not reoffend. But there's problems in our system too. Oh, there's a lot um, of problems. We, <laughs> yes. Um, particularly with with this the rehabilitation side. Um, and now people might not like what I'm going to say, but being a counselor in that position as a forensic clinician, they, I don't know if it's working. Really? Yeah. Because they're not accepting the help. Like I said, right? You have to want to get better to improve. It's like we're, we're trying to force this idea upon them when they don't even think they did anything wrong. So, so take yourself, for example, right? Let's say you always believed um, that you cut apples a certain way. The way you slice an apple, right? However you slice it. And someone comes and tells you, you've been doing it all wrong. But you truly believe that the way that you cut the apple is correct. There's nothing wrong with how you cut the apple. But someone keeps telling you, hey, it's wrong, it's wrong. You know what? Go into therapy and then this is going to help you. But you don't think you're wrong. So then this whole time you're trying to fight your therapist and tell you them, I'm not cutting it wrong. Here, let me show you how I'm cutting it. Right? How far are we really going to get if every week we're arguing about how to cut the apple? Now, that's not the same as a sex offense. I'm not, definitely not the same. These are like two totally different scale metaphors, right? Cutting an apple is not as big a deal as going over someone's boundary or harming them. So it's kind of a similar idea in that we can't force this upon them. Some, yes, I think not forced, but some, they do want to get better. So they will listen. I had, I had some really great clients who listened to me and asked questions and did their homework and would get upset when other people were talking over them or being disruptive. And it sucked because these people really wanted to get better. The reason why I think it might not be working is because if they feel mandated and they are having issues getting jobs or they don't understand how to maintain a structure or a schedule. It's like these small things that are extremely difficult for someone who just got released to do. Because right when they got released, they were expected to get a job, make money. Okay, first of all, getting a job is hard for anyone. So building a resume, building a resume, cover letter, getting an interview, getting a job, court meetings, having a parole officer who you have to report to, Having an ankle monitor. So all my clients had ankle monitors, right? Having mandated therapy twice a week on top of individual therapy. And if they missed one session, it was my job to contact the parole officer and write them up, which would then disrupt their schedule again. So yes, ideally, we would have more facilities that do this, but I'm afraid of do we have the right structure for this? Is it actually helping? I know there's another uh, facility in another state. I can't think of the state right now, but they have a program that actually worked. I don't know too much about it. Some people will argue that are the facilities we have do work. I'm sure there are some programs that are outstanding. I just don't know if the ones that we have here are as good as they can be. Do they really promote true rehabilitation? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if any program can honestly say 100% successful, you know, because 
things fail all the time. Teachers, you know, not every class is going to make straight A's. You know, you're going to have a couple left here and there. That's just the way it is. Just kind of like, you know, not everyone's going to like you. Not, you know, like you're exactly it's, it's life. But if at least it's possible to make these people better than when they went in. Yeah. I mean, I think it's freaking worth to try for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I 100% agree with you. If there is some way that they can improve just a little bit, I mean, that's what I would want too. And I hope that they would want that too. Right. That they realize, hey, maybe that wasn't the right way to go about things. I'm going to change. Especially when it comes to children. Like, what you did to that child now set this child on a completely different path for the rest of their life. Yeah. Yeah. It's about taking ownership for what you did. But I don't know if they even mm-hmm. look at it that way. Some, I don't want to generalize because there were there were a few, you know, and I'm thinking as, as we're talking, I'm thinking about the few that really stood out to me. But the ones that that didn't, that's the. Yeah, like it is about accountability. It is about taking ownership. That's what made the position so difficult. Being, you know. Uh, coming from an Asian background and obviously looking very Asian and, and younger is, is hard, not only because then in their eyes, like in some people's eyes, how can I teach anything that's worthwhile to them? If they've been on this earth two or three times longer than I have. Right. I mean, that's a fair statement, but also me going over like the police report was that we're like just reading it myself and then sitting in front of them, certain people, again, certain people. It's hard to hear when it's just excuses left to right. You know, I was framed. I didn't do it. Misunderstanding. Like you can tell the excuses. Is it impossible that that happened? No, it's not impossible, but to get a court case onto a sex offense, it's a bit more difficult than <laughs> than just oh hey they did this okay cool like we're gonna put you in prison now <laughs> like it's it's really not that easy. Hence why a lot of sexual trauma survivors don't go to the cops. They get re-victimized or, over and over again. And over again, exactly, which causes them to get re-traumatized again. And then that affects their self-esteem. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's like a, it's a trauma cycle. We're not, our system isn't perfect. And I really hope that there's better ways. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really difficult challenge. I'm sure. Trying to help control any other person is a chore in itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually what I tell people is we can't control anyone else's behavior is only our own. And I actually learned that from my personal therapist, um, a previous one that I used to see. Uh, I mean, I'm in therapy now and I love it. <laughs> Great therapist um, who I have now, which I am very blessed to meet her. Um, and yeah, you, you can't control other people's behaviors, only our own. And I think that's a pretty good thing to, 
to follow because then it takes off a lot of that burdening from yourself. And also acceptance comes to play that plays a role in that too. Accepting that, okay, I can't change that person. Like if someone's toxic, for example. Yes. Toxic people, <laughs> they give me anxiety. <laughs> Do you still take on new clients? Um, I actually have a couple of spots left. So I do take on new clients. Um, I My target population is uh, neurodiverse individuals. So people who have ADHD or suspected or um, autism, uh, other mental illnesses. So that's also who I serve. But I am a, I don't know if I said this before, but I'm a sex and relationships therapist, which means that we specialize in sex and relationships. So I see individuals and couples. Um, and I cater to interracial relationships. I'm personally in an interracial relationship myself, so I can understand some of the ins and outs of it, like the challenges that you might experience. Um, sexual trauma and uh, painful sex. So in, for particularly women who experience pain, pain during sex, that is also a specialty of mine. And then I think I had one more. Oh yeah, sexual incompatibility. So if there's like desire discrepancy between partners or libidos are different or they one person wants to do kinks, the other one doesn't, how can we find that middle ground? Um, so really sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy as well. So yeah, if you know, if you know anyone or if other if you're if listeners who are listening have friends who think I would be a great fit, feel free to send them my way. I do have a couple Absolutely. Yes. And actually, so I'm, well, I have started a nonprofit and it's called the Crime Connection. And what I want to do is start pairing some of my guests with people who need help in these areas. And so I would pay for their first session. So say if somebody's like, oh, I want to see you, for instance, I would pay for their first session so they could experience it. See if it's a good fit. And then if it is, then they would continue to pay you from there on. Would you be interested in joining my panel? Yeah, I'd be highly interested. I think that's wonderful that you're doing that. Thank you. Absolutely. Do you do only Zoom or you do in person and Zoom? Like, can they be from anywhere? Do they kind of need to be from the California area and surrounding states? Yeah. um, So I'm only licensed in California right now. Um, and I do do telehealth, so through Zoom. And then I don't have any more availability for in-person, unfortunately, at this time. Okay. Perfect. Well, I'll get a form over to you when I starts rolling more about like your perfect client, because I want everyone to be happy and everyone to be yeah. a perfect fit. So. Yeah. I think that's really nice that you're doing that. Um, I'd be happy to offer like a discounted rate too, so that you don't have to pay um the full fee for the first session um <laughs> you can cut that out <laughs> but yeah um i yeah. mean i'll pay the full price the only thing i ask them for return is just a donation of your choice it could be five dollars i don't care just to the cause okay yeah so yeah absolutely because there's so many things out there that people haven't tried you know like mm-hmm. and maybe they don't want to put the money out you know like would you also be considered like a sexologist or? So that's different. Yeah. Sexologists are a little bit different than sex therapists. Uh, we're actually quite different. <laughs> um, so I don't, 
from okay i think i'm still a little i I tried doing research on like what sexologists do exactly um i do know some of them practice sex therapy but i don't touch clients for example there are um, like body workers who help clients have sex for example if someone's disabled and they need help finding certain positions that work for them and their partner um, there are people for that but for us um, sex therapists we are I like saying it's it's therapy with a twist of talking about sex majority or like relationships or things that you wouldn't feel comfortable talking to a general therapist about for example who only specializes in mental health so what makes sex therapy different is that we do receive extra education around sex sexuality um, sexual health and interventions that we can use and then we also read books we listen to podcasts that are very helpful so that we can you know further our knowledge so yeah it's like we practice therapy i don't know if i answered your question now i feel like i'm getting off tangent <laughs> no you're <laughs> good i i get it like okay sex sexologists might be like a little more hands-on where you're more about the mind and like communication right <laughs> Okay, so, okay, I have the definition. So sexologists are people who study sexual relationships. It's like, yeah, so then they, they've gotten a degree or they've done a lot of learning in, like, the science behind sex, sexuality. Um, sex therapists are the ones that we, we practice it in therapy. So we're, like, sexologists can also be practitioners. I think the difference here that I'm talking about is, like, body sex. I think they're called body workers. That's probably not the right name. There are plenty of other names, but they are more hands-on. I think it's so, a guru. Yeah. Okay. Like a sex guru. I've, I've heard that term before too. Um, as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm not a sexologist. Uh, I am a sex therapist. Awesome. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Sorry, can, I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> no, I get it. Because I actually also had a sexologist on the show and I asked her, I'm like, well, what's the difference between a sexologist and a guru? And she's like, I don't know. Okay, I re- I listened to that episode. Yeah. Oh, did um, you? That was really neat. With Hannah? Yeah. So, yeah, with Hannah. So she explained how she was a sex worker before, but now she's a sexologist where it doesn't sound like she's doing hands-on things. Right. At least to my knowledge. Yeah. I think some from okay, so you don't have to put this in, but I think some sexologists they do sexological body work. I've heard that term too. I just don't want to make people think that like all sexologists do that because right. some, some people think sex therapists touch their clients, and I that's like the first thing I say. I do not touch you. Um, all are close, stay on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> that, that brings it to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> Yeah, exactly. Where would yeah. someone find you if they wanted to contact you directly? Yeah, so you can find me on Psychology Today. If you go on psychologytoday.com, um, you can actually find all therapists around your area and you can filter out by race, uh, age, I think, different modalities and specialties. I really like Psychology Today. And if you type in my name, I'll pop up. You'll see my profile. And you can actually email or call me there directly. So so that's, like, one really easy way. The other way is Instagram. I do have an Instagram that I can give you. 
Um, so you can post it somewhere as well. And they can also message me through there. And on my, oh, I also have a personal website. So I can send that to you too. Okay, and then they can, people can just reach me through. Yeah. You guys can just reach me through my website as well. I'm very handy with my email. It's like my new texting. <laughs> so I'll respond typically same day within like a couple hours. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'll make sure I have all links at the bottom of the show notes. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I guess for those of you who are interested in just seeking therapy in general, but are afraid to take the leap, I would greatly encourage it. Just, you know, I know it can be very intimidating. I know finding the right fit can be very hard. Trust me, like I've gone through my fair share too of, I mean, I'm probably at my fifth therapist now at this point. And finding the right fit can be very hard. But once you do find that right fit, it's, it could be very life-changing. So if you do have any questions about how to find a therapist, um, feel free to contact me or even Tiffany, maybe like Tiffany, if you want to reach, if they reach out to you, they can reach back to me. But yeah, I think it can be very helpful, especially when you're feeling alone or you're feeling like something's off or there is something that you really want to talk about. But making that first step is the hard part. Right. Hopefully when, you know, because like I was saying earlier, there's so many things out there. Like, you know, maybe you wanted to try a life coach, but you didn't want to spend the money. Maybe you want to try hypnosis or there's just so much out there. So why not just try it? Try it on my dime. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's really, again, like very generous of you to do that, Tiffany. So. Yeah, I guess for listeners who are listening, like take advantage of these resources. Yeah, I mean, they're there for you to try. They're there for healing. You know, it's not just, oh, Mm -hmm. I hate my job. Let me go see for a therapist. It's got to be a little bit more in depth than that. But (laughs) absolutely, Mm -hmm. I want to try to make this world at least a little better of a place if we can. Yeah. That would be very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very necessary, I would say. <laughs> I agree. We need a lot of that. So. Yeah. All right. If you don't have anything else. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me on. It's such an honor. Oh. <laughs> Being that middle person between helping people in their relationships and find like being the bridge actually for people like communications within relationships, for example, sometimes it'd be very hard to communicate things to partners. So I would be kind of that mediator to help with, okay, how can we communicate that in a manner that's not attacking, but in a very welcoming way so that partners truly understand each other. Right. Are they at the same session or do you do them separately? Oh, no, it's the same session. So like couple therapy, they have the same time. Yeah. Gotcha. I didn't know if like, okay, I just, have it with one yeah. person, then one person, then bring you together. And <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes there'll be times when like, it would be helpful to split the couple and then bring them back. 
because it can get there can be like high tension. I can totally see so that. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I'll be like, okay, let's take a break. Let's do individuals first, then we'll come back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very cool. But yeah. If you know somebody who could benefit from this episode, please be sure to share it with them. All links will be at the bottom of the show notes. Make sure to check those out. Do you want to be on the show? Just as easy as sending me an email, crimeovercocktails at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out those podcasts of the month on the Deluxe Network, Growing Up Bananas, as you heard earlier, and In a Pickle. If you're one of these pickleball fanatics, that's right up alley. Your alley. Your alley. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.